Hi, I'm Bill Gaither, and welcome to More Than the Music, a podcast where you can join me for conversations with some of the most interesting people I know. Each episode features a special guest who has inspired me in some way during my 50 years in the music industry. You'll meet incredible artists, writers, and comedians, sports figures, and other folks I'm grateful to call my friends. Join me now for this week's episode of More Than the Music. It's going to be good. The joy of doing what I do is to intersect with a lot of interesting people. And uh, our friend today is President John Pistol. John, it's good to have you with us. Bill, it's a joy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I can remember... I I, th- I think you were yeah you were with the FBI then that mm. the, the trio was doing a concert in Washington at the Constitution mm. Hall okay. and uh, and my friend Jim Edwards said you need to call John Pistol while you're there and we went out uh, uh, to lunch that day while, while you were working with the FBI FBI you were there for 26 years right that's right almost 27 yeah and somebody said that was a record is that true. Well, so the record uh, was for and continues as the longest-serving deputy director, which is the number two position. N- number two person. So I served almost six years. Most deputy directors last a, a year, year and a half, maybe two years. And <laughs> I just didn't get it right, so I kept uh, kept working. And this is after nine eleven. So yeah, sure. working with Robert Mueller, Director Mueller, and and uh, who had the second longest tenure as a director. Uh, in the Bureau's history, so. You know, it's interesting, that day, you know, I, I was just a kid as far as Washington is concerned. I thought, man, I get this close to an FBI guy, I could get my hands in the cookie jar. You're the quietest lunch I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear I didn't uh, divulge too many uh, top secret pieces uh, so, of information. Yeah. You, you were so cool. Gloria, <laughs> Gloria asked me later after the lunch, said, did you learn anything? I said, not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my uh, predecessors as deputy director was uh, nicknamed Deep Throat. So he was actually the source of the Watergate leak that... I, I um, remember that. Yeah, so that was a deputy director of the FBI. It <laughs> 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 led to Nixon's downfall. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And then later on, uh, I, I, you went with the TSA, right? Yes. So in 2010, uh, I was asked whether I would be willing to consider putting my name in to go before the Senate... Uh, as the what's called the administrator of the Transportation Security Administration, TSA. And my first thought was, well, now there's a thankless job. <laughs> who would want to do that? <laughs> to stop all of us oh, passengers my. who just want to get on our plane. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Nearly 2 million people a day, 450 airports in the U.S. I thought, well, there's a, there's a job that I just would not relish. But I thought about it, prayed about it, and just had a sense that, I should say yes, and I learned that there had been two prior nominees. So this was in the uh, President Obama's first term, and I'm yeah. apolitical. Yeah. Um, but when a president asks you to do something, if sure. long as it's legal, moral, ethical, and all those things, sure. and to lead a 63,000-person organization, I thought, wow, that would be a challenge. <laughs> and at that time, the TSA did not have the best reputation. Um, 
because oh. there's really a one-size-fits-all approach yep. to anybody could be a terrorist. Of course, TSA was created after 9-11, and the sense was, and actually the one of the catchphrases of TSA was, not on my watch. So they take <laughs> their job very seriously, but what that translated into is that there was a very rigid system of anybody could be a terrorist, so perhaps we should treat them as such. So I introduced what's known as risk-based security. So if any of your listeners go through TSA pre-check and like that, I'll take full credit for it. <laughs> I, I introduced that. That was one of 25 different changes that we brought about. Uh, if there's anything about TSA they don't like, I'll give you the name of my successor two times removed now since I left uh, five years ago almost. So, yeah. So it, yeah. was a, it was a good experience and, um, yeah, just a real opportunity to learn a different part of government and leadership mm -hmm. that I thought I knew a fair amount about by head, helping head up the FBI for almost six years in that position, along with 21 years as, as an agent, you know, coming up through the ranks and all that. So, yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate in my life, Bill, to to see how God has been at work and, and where he was opening doors. And I felt like my job was to discern, is this a God thing? And if so, should yeah. I be open to it? And then to step through that door and then go from there. I can remember back uh, when we did have have that lunch that day. That was mm. probably, what, 30 years ago? I, uh, well, I, no, that was... Um, uh, that was after 9-11. So, 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 oh, okay. Yeah, so probably 15, 18. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I can remember uh, you said yes, but I have a meeting in the morning, a Bible study with, mm. uh, with some people. And I thought that was rather interesting. And mm. FBI, because every time you think of FBI, you think of <laughs> Jagger Hoover with the gun. Oh, <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and you were coming from a Bible study. And I was... I, I was impressed with that. And also, mm. your, your wife, Kathy, was yeah. involved with a group of, uh, right. of, of, believers? of, yeah. of, of believers. Believers in Washington, D.C., seems like they're, <laughs> they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm. But, but you know what? Since then, I found a lot of believers there. John Ashcroft oh, was a, another friend of yours, a friend right. of mine, who was a strong believer. Maybe in some ways, mm. the faith element might even help in a culture like that. Oh, I think so. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, D.C. obviously is a fascinating, diverse city in so many ways. But I would, what I was surprised by, one of the many things, but very pleasantly surprised, is that there is a fellowship of believers there uh, who are interested in being rooted and grounded in, in the Word and in truth, and doing the right thing, not only as a Christ follower, but for the government and for national security and other things, and people that are willing to make sacrifices. Um, I won't say who, but recently on the campus of Anderson University, we had a guest who have been fortunate to bring in a yeah. number of people I used to work yeah. with right. who come in and talk about the national security or cybersecurity to the new majors who started in the last uh, several years. And this person uh, was the deputy director of another agency for eight years. Right. So right. exceeded mine. And during that eight years, he took off 10 days, personal days. And that's including weekends. And so it was such, so you think of eight years, 365 days a year, and he took off 10 days total because the demands of the job and the sense of mission and purpose 
to make sure that the bad guys, however they're being defined, sure. didn't get the upper hand. And so I found a lot of that, a real dedication and sense of purpose and commitment to doing the job and doing it the right way. You know, you hear the phrase a lot uh, uh, in politics, uh, and, and I like the phrase, do the right thing. Hmm, right. Just, I mean, just do the right thing. And when you do the right thing, and I think of it in my field, sometimes uh, doing the right thing means that maybe one of your best friends is not going to be included. Hmm, yeah, <laughs> or that's maybe right. one of your best friends will be excluded. Excluded, perhaps, right. We throw that phrase around, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. It's easier to say it than to do it, isn't it? Well, it is, and it's uh, the phrase situational ethics comes to mind because uh, you and I might say do the right thing and, and have being rooted and grounded. We have a sense of this is what that means. Others may have a different worldview or perspective of what that means, and so they may make d different judgments or decisions based on that paradigm that they're coming from. Mm -hmm. But hopefully, if they're working for the government or in, in, in anywhere, in any, industry, in, any yeah, kind of a yeah, job, anything, that doing the right thing means a couple things. One is they are helping others in whatever their work is, that, and they're adding value in a positive way. So those things are, I think, key ingredients in terms of doing the right thing? Are they helping others and adding value? In my field, um, every now and then I have a pastor will say, Bill, how can I get you to come to my church? And I'll say, you don't want me to come to your church. <laughs> you want me to come and bring all of this young talent that mm -hmm. I, I've been able to collect and come to your church. Sure. And to do that, and, and, and we've had this discussion before, somebody says, you are who you hang with. Mm. And to get input from people that will give you some basis of doing the right thing, sometimes in choosing talent in my field, mm -hmm. I got to overlook one of my very best friends. Mm. Sometimes in songwriting, uh, I have to overlook even a song my son or my daughter submitted for the project mm. that didn't necessarily fit the project and would not be doing the right thing right. had I done it. Right. Doing the right thing uh, for you, John, had to start back with your family. Your, your, your father was mm. a professor mm -hmm. of uh, religion or, or mm -hmm. the Bible at Anderson College when you were growing up as a kid. Right. He had been a pastor in the Church of God movement in Baltimore, where my brother, who's 18 months older than I, were both born. Our, our two older sisters were already there. And, but we moved to Anderson, Indiana, when I was a year old because my dad took a position in the Church of God uh, executive offices, and then within a couple of years uh, became a professor at the uh, yeah. school of theology, the seminary that was yeah. that is part of Anderson University now. Your mother is also uh, a, a teacher, an educator, yeah, yeah, in English and psychology. Was yeah, that, she taught yeah. at uh, local public school, Anderson High School, and I think you knew her from uh, your early days of teaching. After I got got out of college, I. Uh, I had 10 years in the public school, and uh, after two or three years, 
both Anderson uh, University and Ball State University came to me and said, would you be interested in some student teachers? And most of them were just you know, 23, <laughs> 24, 25-year-olds. And here came this lady, probably at 50 at the time, 47. 40, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, she was in her 40s or 50s. Yeah. And... Uh, and said uh, she, she was going to be my student, my student teacher. Now, anybody who's been in class in college with an older person, male or female, you know the curve is going to go way, way up <laughs> because they are better prepared. Yes. They've had more lifetime experience. Real life, that's right. When she came in as my new uh, student teacher, I said, Elizabeth, and after we talked for a while, I said, I'm not. I'm not so sure what you're going to learn, learn from me. <laughs> Maybe I can learn some stuff from you. It was a wonderful association. Mm. Gloria and I had just started writing, and she was so much interested in, in the writing mm. and the poetry and all of that. We had a wonderful time. So I knew your mother way, yeah. way before I knew you. Sure. So in doing the right thing, how else could a kid coming out of that family, the Pistol family, right. Do anything else except do the right thing, even though as a young person, I'm sure there were times that you wanted to push the boundaries like any young kid. But it's a pretty good base for being an FBI, oh, for, for yeah. being a deputy director for the <laughs> FBI for 26 years. Well, deputy for six years, but yeah, yeah but yeah, this, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I was blessed to be born into and raised by great godly parents, as you say, with my mom and dad. But I did take an alternate route after being baptized at age 12, and and um, by the time I was 13, I was, what I would say, breaking bad, just going off on my own. I rejected their beliefs and rejected God and was a party kid as a teenager. And, and then by the time I was a senior in high school on a number one ranked high school basketball team in the state of Indiana, which at that time just had one class, so there was one number one out of the <laughs> entire state. Uh, the future Mr. Basketball, another All-State player when I was a junior, and I was going to be starting as a senior because we just had a talent-loaded team. But two weeks into my senior year, I was number one on the high school tennis team, so I was a pretty popular guy, and I was a party guy. It's all about me <laughs> and myself and I. And it's hard to say no at that point. Well, yeah, you know, sure I was sure. having fun, and sure. I didn't really care about the faith of my parents. That, yeah. was, that yeah. was their deal, and so... Yeah. But two weeks into my senior year uh, at high school, I was involved in a serious car accident and ended up with a broken neck. And mm. I th literally thought that uh, that night in the hospital when I realized I had a broken neck that I couldn't go to sleep because I had a friend who broke his neck on the high school gymnastics team the year before. He's on the trampoline, mm. paralyzed from the neck down as soon as it happened, and then he died a week later. Mm. And I thought that was my only experience with broken necks. You have a broken neck, you're yeah. either going to die or be paralyzed, neither of which were good options. But I literally felt like I was beyond forgiveness or redemption. That was how immature my faith was. And so it was only because of God's mercy and grace that I feel like I got a second chance in life physically, but more importantly, spiritually. So it's real, been a journey of faith uh, since I was 17, and now I'm a little bit older, 63. And just the sense of, okay, how is God at work, and how can I join him in that work? So I set out to be a lawyer, and I did that for a couple of years, and 
and just really didn't enjoy it. I, I just felt like it was all about the billable hours for the law firm. And yeah. yeah, I might be helping people and all that. But I had just had a sense, okay, God, what else should I be doing? Mm. And I had to wrestle with, am I a failure as a lawyer if I say I'm willing to go to the FBI where I'd be a, an FBI agent as opposed to a lawyer? And so I wrestled with that. Long story short is I did get hired by the FBI after a year's application process and twice them telling me they wouldn't be able to hire me. Once because they figured out that I'd had a broken neck in a car accident uh, yeah. 10 years earlier and all that. And we worked through that. And and that you might be limited physically because well, you were... Well, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And that was one of the questions. So I, uh, they, I had a new physical done where the doctor checked the box that says, yes, the applicant is capable of engaging in strenuous physical activity. The first doctor forgot to check that, even though I played four years of college basketball and tennis. I mean, I literally had a uh, a full physical healing, and praise God for that. So I, I was able to do that. So I was able to do the physical fitness aspects and just had a sense of how God was leading in ways that I could have never imagined. And then on all those years, twenty almost 27 with the FBI, including the last six as, as the deputy director and something I never aspired to or dreamed about. But again, God opened some doors that I felt like my job was to discern that and then in faith step through that door and say, okay, God, what do you have? And actually, Bill, that's how I got to TSA and now how I got to Anderson University. I, I never grew up thinking about, boy, I want to be a college president and uh, my alma mater. I mean, we've had four presidents in 100 years, all who were ordained ministers. My dad and my father-in-law were ordained. Kathy, my wife, her dad was a pastor in D.C. for 37 years. And and so had that in the family tree, if you will, mm. but not my lineage, if you will, in terms of who I was. Mm. And I didn't feel called to be a pastor. And yet, well, you were on the search committee. You know uh, what the yeah. behind-the-scenes deliberations, but uh, the way I was approached is we're looking for somebody with some good leadership experience and ability. And I'm a I'm an alum, obviously, and I grew up on a block and a half from campus, so I know the school and I know a lot about it. But still, that was not something on my horizon or agenda. And yet, I see God's strong hand and provision and leadership and guidance uh, in this whole process. And so, it's almost five years now that I've been at Anderson University as a president, and just having a great time introducing some new majors, like I mentioned, national security, cybersecurity, things from my background, sure, and just working with a great faculty and staff and love working with the students and getting to know them. And Kathy, my wife, and I host students in our home pretty regularly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real joy. You have to love kids. Oh, yeah. To be a, a president of a, of, of a university. Yeah. I've known several presidents of Christian colleges, mm. and it seems like they all have one thing in common. Mm. They love kids. Mm. They love to put their arms around kids, yeah. make them feel good. Right. I, uh, I had a friend one time who uh, was a great, great reader, and he'd come up with great statements. And he said this, and I don't know whether it was original or not, but it's a great statement. The longer the line of preparation, the more apt it is to intersect with the line of opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, that is. And yeah. I look at somebody like you, uh, hmm. 
growing up, I know pretty much uh, mm-hmm. the culture uh, that, that, that you came from. Mm-hmm. And uh, taking all of those experiences and then trying to figure out what are my gifts, what mm-hmm. are my skills, what can I do? I talk to kids all the time who love mm-hmm. music. You know, and I say it's not much different than being a good athlete. Mm. In fact, I love to compare picking talent in our field with a Donnie Wash, who's Mm -hmm. been ahead of the Pacer personnel. He's retired now for many, many years. And one night uh, in talking with him about looking at talent for a professional basketball team, he says, he says, talent Talent will always seduce you. Mm. Character will always bite you in the fanny. <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof. Or or lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know, as an athlete, and you still work out every day, right? I sure try to. Yeah, I try to stay in good shape. And so I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, every day I work out yeah. first thing in the morning. This podcast is being sponsored by the folks at Game Show Network. Game Show Network is dedicated to creating family-friendly, fun programming that's right for everyone. They've got great shows morning, noon, and night, and their afternoon block of original programs from 4 to 8 are the kinds of play-along, laugh-along shows that you can watch no matter who is in the room. Great to share with your kids or your grandkids. It's the kind of entertainment that will have everyone shouting their answers along with the television as they all watch the same screen. And these days, we know it's tough to get everyone to agree on, well, just about anything. If you're looking for entertainment that the whole family can enjoy together, the answer is Game Show Network. I can remember Dr. Reardon, who was your mm-hmm. predecessor. Twice not, removed, right? Uh, twice removed. We became even better friends after he was out of the job, and we would mm. go out and eat breakfast together quite often. And he would say, Bill, you know the best gift you can give to your kids. I said, what's that, Dr. Reardon? He said, give them good health. Mm. And I said, well, that's okay if... <laughs> If the cards that you're dealt, you know, are good cards, but every now and then you got to play a bad hand. Well, that's right. It, it's something you don't know what to do. But health was very important to him. Mm. And from what I understand, you still have a pretty good workout routine as an ex as an ex athlete. Well, that's right. Well, I just uh, I feel like my health is a gift from God that I am to nurture, and it doesn't just happen. So it, it's a discipline, just like the spiritual disciplines of. You know, prayer and meditation and others. So yeah, every morning, I, my routine, my habit, my discipline is to get up and have some quiet time, and then go work out. And whether it's walking or swimming or running, every once in a while, joints are starting to wear out. But yeah, just to to try to stay healthy and knowing that there's no guarantees, because yeah. again, I learned at an early age that health is very fragile, and in a moment's yeah. notice, yeah. you can have a broken neck in a car accident and your life is over as you know it or it's over. So, yeah, I try to make that a priority. Gloria's mother said, uh, she was pretty philosophical about life. She said, you know, we get serious about life 
probably two different times. One is when a baby is born. Mm. I mean, it's pretty amazing, right. this little creature coming in. Yeah. And the other is at the end, mm-hmm. uh, when when there's a life-threatening uh, right. thing. Are, are you going to make it or not? Exactly. You had, you had a friend that did not make it right. through, through a broken neck. We kind of get serious then. We sing a song that says, I'm going to love like I'm leaving, give more than I'm receiving, laugh until it takes my breath away. Mm. I'm going to say what needs saying, pray what needs praying. I'm going to love like I'm leaving here today. And mm. so and so, in between those two serious moments, right. we do have to live, but at the same time, to be reckless and careless and not mm. really caring in, 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 you know, in the meantime, because there's a lot of work to do. And it's interesting, I taught 10 years in a public school, and, uh, and then my night job overtook my day job, and... Uh, mm. And we started writing and and and, do, and and doing our music full time, but it was then I realized that, and, and I believe in the public school. I think there's something about culturally mixing a lot of different ethnic mixes, getting to know people from a lot of different socioeconomic uh, uh, levels. I think that is all very very. Uh, very good. And I think in graduate studies, I think you got to go to the school that's going to help you uh, zero in on what you want to do the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. However, I really believe in Christian higher education at the mm. college level for, oh, a lot, for, for a lot of reasons. And that's the reason I spent 44 years of my, of my life just retired. Right. As uh, a trustee at Anderson University, praise God. Because I believe in those four years after high school, you're going to make a lot of major decisions for your life, including a mate. Possibly. And I was blessed there. I, I met a wonderful mate. You and I both, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So people say, why did you spend that much time mm. uh, You know, at that level? Kids can go to college anywhere. And mm. I say... And that's good. And they could get a good education and they could possibly meet some wonderful people. Your chances Mm. of meeting the people who will shape your life forever. I think of Dr. Kardaski, brilliant, brilliant Mm. psychologist and taught psychology, found out when he was 52, 53 years old, Mm. he had cancer in Mm. just a few, I think of probably pancreatic or something, mm. knew that his time was limited. Right. Seeing him at Old Park Place Church lean up against the wall, mm. singing, so I'll cherish the old oh, ragged cross, cross till my trophies at last, Lord. and seeing tears in his eyes. Yeah. You know the impact that has on a 19, 20, 21-year-old? Right. <laughs> Powerful to have those kind of people in right. your life to say, and I'm not afraid of death. Yeah, I'm, I, I'd like to live longer, but at this stage, I'm in good hands because he lives. <laughs> well, you're, well, you're, uh, you're kind. So, mm. I know why I spent 44 years of my life, and I had people when they knew we were talking to a guy who was a career uh, FBI guy who wasn't ready to retire necessarily, Mm, could could have gone on longer. Why would he do this? Mm -hmm. 
So, John, this is your chance. Why did you do it? Oh, well, thank you, Bill. And again, thank you for your 44 years of unprecedented service and sacrifice on behalf of Anderson University. You have made, you and Glory have been a transformative presence on campus in terms of mentoring and helping others. And so my short story is I've felt a strong sense of God's leading back to Anderson University in a most unexpected and unplanned way. And I could go into a lot of detail, but again, the short story is that God opened a series of doors um, through different circumstances that I believe God was behind to say, John, you should consider this, and then to have Kathy, my wife, who's from the D.C. area where we'd been living for the last 13 years uh, before we said yes to the possibility of coming to Anderson, to, for her to say that, yes, I will consider this. Because when I first got the call about it, um, I, I, the friend who called me said, the president who's been here almost 25 years is thinking about retiring but would like to have a successor lined up before he retires and wanted to talk to you about his successor. And I said, well, I'm flattered. Uh, let me think of some names. I'll get back with you tomorrow. And my friend kind of chuckled. He said, well, no, a small group of us got together and thought you would be a good candidate. Then I chuckled. And I knew that Anderson University was a dry campus, but I thought, well, what are they smoking out there in Indiana? (laughs) (laughs) That uh, they would consider a recovering lawyer, FBI, TSA guy (laughs) as the next Anderson University president. And so I almost didn't tell Kathy that because I thought, we've never talked about going back to Anderson. I mean, that's not what retired government executives do, even if they're from there. Yeah, yeah. So I did, in case somebody reached out for her. And... And she said, well, uh, you're not interested, are you? I said, well, no, I've never thought about it. I said, it is flattering, and I'm intrigued by it. And then she paused for a moment because she's an alum also. And she said, well, you're not qualified, right? And because she knew that the four presidents had been ordained and had a terminal degree, highest degree. Sure. And so I got back to my friend and said, you know, I'm flattered, but no, it's not in the cards. And so didn't think much more about it. And uh, three days later, I got home after work, had dinner, and was sitting on the couch. And Kathy was sitting there reading, and she closed her book and turned toward me. We, we'd been married about 35 years at this time. And I thought, I don't know what she's going to say, but this is a good opportunity for me to be a good listener, to get some brownie points, basically. Yeah. So I closed my iPad. I was checking some sports scores and things. Yeah. <laughs> I actually closed, even though I knew I could multitask, and set it out and turned toward her. And without saying anything else, she just looked me in the eye. She said, where you go, I'll go. Whom you serve, I'll serve. Your God will be my God, your people, my people. And I just couldn't believe it because this is a woman 40 years ago now who kept her maiden name when we got married. I mean, she's an <laughs> independent woman. And for her to say that, I, I got choked up. I said, do you know what you're saying? And she said, well, if this is a God thing, shouldn't we be open to it? And I said, yeah. I guess we should. So I got back to my friend the next day. I said, well, you're not going to believe this, um, but what's the process? And so that started the whole process. And what was it? Several num- number of months later, of course, met with you and the board and the search team and interviewed and, and then eventually was selected. And if I could make a confession at the board meeting, you, you might recall where uh, I was presented uh, for consideration to be voted upon, uh, I was still the head of TSA, and I said, um, so, yeah, John Pistol, and I know a number of you and all this, 
And I said, for all those of you who vote for me, I'll give you TSA pre-check benefits for life. <laughs> I remember <laughs> and that. And I thought, you know, that's probably not a good way to get started. But, uh, lying to the board, your boss here at a Christian university. <laughs> so I retracted that. But it's just a sense of, yeah, a homecoming. As Here we are in the studio with homecoming established 1991. Well, my homecoming was established a long time ago. And so it's a sense of, how God has been at work in this life journey that would bring John Pistol back to Anderson University in a most unexpected way. You know, I think uh, a question that sometimes men uh, wonder about about the Christian faith is the whole business of turning the other cheek. Mm. <laughs> and you've been in law Enforcement, mm-hmm. right? You know, holding people accountable. You know, you know, holding people accountable. And I think, I think it's really tough for men. I think it's a fair, fair question. Bonhoeffer wrestled with that mm. for several years until right. he he was a big time pacifist. Yeah, until <laughs> when, uh, uh, in the thirties when Hitler was, uh, right. you know, it was. And finally concluded he needed to do something that I got to be part of a group to take out the life right. of another human being in order to protect right. the, the life, greater good, the greater good. Absolutely. And I think from a theological, philosophical perspective, for a lot of men, they, I had one guy said, I understand everything there is about the Christian faith except turning the other cheek. Hmm. He said, and there are times when you have to say no hmm. and enforce the no for the better good. Oh, all right. <laughs> now, as a, a, yeah. a, now, as an ex-FBI <laughs> agent, has anybody ever asked you that question? Uh, they have, but not in that context or in that perspective. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a challenge, I think. Uh, for men, I would say probably for everybody, but, and I think it gets back to how do we view the idea of surrender if you're a Christ follower? So what does that mean to be surrendering? Um, and I, I love there's a covenant that uh, the Renovare organization uh, puts out, and it starts off, in utter dependence upon Jesus Christ as my ever-living Savior, teacher, Lord, and friend. Uh, I'll practice these different disciplines and things. And then has... Uh, some different ways of doing that. But that whole idea of in utter dependence on something outside of me, well, that's not the way we, particularly men, I would say, are raised. We are to be self-sufficient, self-made, and we are pull our you know, booster up by our own bootstraps and things. So it's contrary, but I think that's very consistent with the life of Christ, who was a contrarian in so many ways. And so that idea of surrender to a greater power that we don't feel or touch or you know experience. Sure, sure. That idea that allows us to turn the other cheek as appropriate. So it doesn't mean in my mind being a doormat or letting bad guys do bad things and not be held accountable, but it, it means in utter dependence upon Jesus Christ that I will seek to do acts of service or exercise the gifts that God's given me and practice daily spiritual disciplines to make me as as Christ-like as I can in this world. And so the idea of turning the other cheek is something I look at 
you know, on a situational by situational basis and saying, okay, what does that mean here? So if somebody hijacks some planes and flies them into buildings and kills thousands of people, I don't think my job as an FBI agent was to turn to the other team and say, well, they were misguided. We won't try to hold them accountable because I believe there is accountability and God ordains governments and things like that. So I believe that's the case. But in my personal life, if you say something that is insulting to me, how do I respond to that? Or I perceive it as such. Do I respond in kind or do I pray for discernment and wisdom and and to not uh, entertain my tongue and then give it a little bit of thought and then perhaps come back to you later and say, so what did you mean by that? And so how do we, how do we work through this? And I've just, it's interesting you ask that because I've just been doing that um, with some young people here in the last week who asked for some advice about how to deal with the situation. And it's really, so is it turning the other cheek or is it a matter of confronting in love to not uh, react as we are often feel like we want to do is just in our human condition. So it, it, that's a deep subject you asked about. And uh, yeah, I think that's a subject to a whole other podcast with a much more learned person than, than <laughs> I. <laughs> However, that is a great, mm. great, great answer. And, and, and I appreciate it coming from you. Yeah. Well, that's been my life experience in terms of, yeah, how can I, what, what does it mean to surrender? Uh, because the idea of, again, for, particularly, uh, you know, a successful person, but a guy who's been raised to be the leader and, and all these different things, and the idea of surrender, well, that's contrary to human nature. Do you think there's a connection between what you just said mm. and when Jesus said, uh, blessed are the meek? Yeah. Or they were, because I've heard theologians to say meek does not mean weak. Right. Meek means strength under control. Is that what you mean? Yeah, heard? and strength in the right things is the way I've heard it described. So yeah. strength in the the most powerful force in the universe who who uh, literally, I believe, since my accident all those years ago, I believe I think there's Psalm 73 says, my heart and my flesh shall fail, but but God will be my provision forever. I feel like God holds his hand on my heartbeat for every heartbeat. And the next one that I just have and had, that's a gift from God. So I, my <laughs> calling is to live my life, however long that is, in fullness of the richness and glory and grace of God's abundance and his provision and his um, calling in my life. Lloyd Fricks was a classmate of mine, maybe a, a year older, the strongest, physically, the strongest human being that I ever knew. Wow. He passed away a couple, three years ago, and a friend of mine and I went to the funeral, mm. or went to the funeral home mm -hmm. for the viewing. Everybody loved Lloyd, mm. he he was, we called him a gentle giant. Mm. But when I say physically big, I mean 260 pounds, mm. all in his shoulders, wow. and they're all waist. If you were third and short in football, <laughs> give the ball to Lloyd, He's, he would move the entire He'd take the line, line. with him. <laughs> so interesting, John, mm. at his 
service, everybody's talking about how kind he was. And then somebody said, I never heard him getting any scrapes mm. on the street. And people, somebody laughed and said, no, nah, he saved that for the football field. Mm. And I asked my friend, did you ever see him angry even? Because anger is a big issue these days. Oh, sure. how, how we control yeah. our anger. Right. Said, I've never, my friend said, I've never seen him angry. Then he paused. And he said, one time, we were in the student center at Ball State University, and there were three thugs. Mm. <laughs> he, he said thugs. Thugs. Making fun of an overweight girl oh. with bad complexion. Yeah. And, and Lloyd was in the mix, mm. and he was very quiet. But it was really ridicule at its worst. Right. Right. He said, Lloyd stood up and looked at the three and said, I can either do it here or I can take you out in the alley. Wow. <laughs> and he said, I can either do it one at a time or all three of you at a time. Wow. But he pointed to the girl. And I, this tears me up when I yeah. think of it. He says, you are not going to talk to her like that. Wow. Now, as a former FBI person, I'm talking with you. Mm. I call that Christ-like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should say, yeah. Well, I, I think of the words of, of Prophet Micah. So, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what's what right do. or stand against evil, but how we do that and what's in our heart sound like Lloyd's heart was really beautiful pure, human beautiful human defending being. the defenseless yeah so wow what a blessing and i imagine those three guys never did that again <laughs> with that young woman or anybody else wow uh, powerful i wish we had 3 days to talk on that subject oh, yeah yeah i said at the beginning of these series of uh, podcasts. You are who you hang with. Mm. And I have been blessed to have a series of good, good relationships of both male and female. Mm. And John Pistol, I'm a richer man today mm. and blessed because being able to hang with you. Mm. Thanks for sharing this time with us. Well, thank you, Bill. It is an honor and a privilege to, to be on your podcast. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you for joining me for this episode of More Than the Music. For details on the Gaither Vocal Band tour dates, the latest Gaither music releases, and much more, visit us online at gaither.com. This is Bill Gaither signing off until the next edition of More Than the Music. 